0: Okay, the S&P, the stops. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our special Sunday mailbag edition. That's right, surprise, surprise. We're here on a Monday with a special bonus edition. I'm Scott Phillips and with me is the doctor, Dr. Anirban Mahati. How are you, buddy?
1: Good day, Captain. I'm very, very, very
0: good. Are you? Yeah. I'm oh, glad to hear that. Yeah. Is that we're going to have lunch soon? Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so this, if this podcast is shorter than usual, you know that Doc's hungry. All right, let's 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 not muck around too much. Let's get straight into it. We got a question from Harry. Now, Harry, look, so we finished Friday's mailbag episode, mate, with Michael giving me grief. Mm-hmm. And Michael, again, I will say, just have a good look at yourself. Now, Harry now Harry knows what he's doing. Harry starts this one, hello, Mr. Phillips. What about me? Well, I don't care about you, mate. I'm all about me. You know that. Harry, come I just on. Want, I just want a bit of respect. No, no, he does He doesn't he does mention you in the next line. I just I just appreciate a bit of respect. You know? But like you know, Fine. I'm an important man. I need some respect. Harry, well done. Thank you. He says, firstly, thanks to you and Doc for all your foolish advice. The podcast has been so insightful and has helped me start on my investing journey. Thank you, Harry. I've also become a happy EO member. Oh, now it's all about you again. I've also become a happy EO member, Extreme Opportunities, and I'm very grateful for all of the knowledge I have picked up. How good's that? I'm going to put a break in here, mate. This is fantastic. I'm going to put "add" in because Harry likes EO. Yeah. You like EO. I like EO. Yeah. Why are all our listeners not members of EO yet? I don't know. Ask them. Well, I, I, well, I mean, they can't respond because the podcast, dude. Oh, that's true. It's not a phone call. Come on. <laughs> um, but, but I could, <laughs> I could rhetorically ask them. Yeah,
1: rhetorically. If ask you're them. out
0: there and you're a member of EO, why the hell not? I mean, that in the nicest possible. Way. I mean, that in a positive way. I mean, that in a very supportive way. But come on. Go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast and join Doc and Kevin at Multifull Extreme Opportunities. They're looking for some great companies. The ones that Harry has already said he likes, the ones that he's happy he's joined the service. Why don't you be happy like Harry? Join EO. Go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast because it is, say it with me, stupidly cheap. All right, let's get on with Harry's question. Uh, <laughs> add over. <laughs> I have a question regarding company share purchase plans. Without getting into the specifics of the company I work for and of the plan itself, this may be a silly question, but I'm wondering where do the shares come from when employees subscribe to the plan and then the company distributes them? Is the company just issuing more shares? And if so, does this mean it's kind of like a capital raising? Also, is there a way of finding out how many employees are getting shares from share purchase plans for any company in order to work out the percentage of the company that I may hold? Thanks in advance for your help. Look forward to you and the doc discussing full-on Harry. Nice, Harry. Good question, mate. Thanks for the uh, kind words, and I think if more people call me Mister Phillips, I'd be a happier man. That's all I'm saying. I think people should call you Captain Phillips. <laughs> <laughs> there was a movie about that. Yeah, that was a Tom Hanks movie. Yeah, exactly. I've still never seen it. Well, you should. I should. Yeah, you should. I should. I should. I'm, sure it's very, I'm sure it's very good. Tom Hanks never makes a bad movie, so does? Just it?
1: have grab some wine.
0: Yes, Deal. Treasury wine. Deal.
1: And uh, I have to say, I own
0: shares in Treasury because you mentioned it. But thank you. Yes, it's yeah, a so Treasury that. wine. Yes,
1: and then uh, go to iTunes and end the movie. There you go.
0: That sounds very very good to me. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so back to Harry's question. Um, Doc. Yeah. Where do the shares come from when employees subscribe to the share purchase plan? They're printed. They're printed yeah. on the company printer. They're the company printer. Up on, up on level three outside the CEO's office. <laughs> <laughs> the, the CEO's PA is pressing the print button and the shares are coming out the machine.
1: Just like the reserve bank can print money,
0: <laughs> yes, companies
1: can print shares, right? Right. So, like uh, in his answer to his question, in most cases, 90, I'll say 90 percent of the cases, yep. in some cases, what happens is company actually owns some stock in treasury, yeah, and they can issue that treasury stock most of the time though when a company owns stock in treasury they actually effectively cancel it and goes out of circulation so when new when new stock is issued to employees they're basically new issuance that issuance of new stock is actually disclosed to the market yes uh so the asx will have information about it yep uh there'll be a a a notice of lodgment and that notice of lodgment will also tell us how many shares in total there should be there. And effectively, unless you have a database like we have one from uh, SP Capital IQ, where you can uh-huh. easily look up how many shares are there in total that are out, or when, when I say out means issued, uh-huh. you can also go to ASX, uh, look it up. Um, or look up the company's mm. announcement pages mm. and find out how many sh- shares uh, are out and then look at how many shares you own and you know what fraction of the company you own.
0: Correct, pretty straightforward. Uh, the companies will in their annual reports always have the total number of shares outstanding, so you can use that number. That's a pretty straightforward one. To Doc's point, the, the, the answer is it depends, Harry. So um, Doc was giving the more most common answer, which is common in 95, 99% of cases. It is possible some companies could buy shares on the market to give to their employees. It's possible, very few do, but it's possible. Um, Some can, so we work for a company, The Motley Fool, that actually isn't a publicly listed company. It's privately owned, um, but there is an internal market where shares are printed and then canceled, um, depending on what's going on in terms of, you know, occasionally we get a share grant. Um, our CEO and, and co-founder um, will happily throw us some shares. Say, "Hey guys, you're doing a good job. Here's some shares," um, and then they give us a chance to sell those shares, effectively back to the company to, to uh, monetize that that gain at some future point. Um, so there is an internal market. Those shares are issued and cancelled, issued and cancelled. So it really depends. Um, you know, it's 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 a question of you know we don't generally speaking love the idea of more shares being issued to any company because it dilutes everybody. Um the question for the shareholders and for the management is, is that dilution worth it? Now, if it makes you super, super incentivized to go and, you know, run through walls and do great things for the company, then that's pretty cheap, right? And it's only it's only effectively a different version of remuneration anyway. If I give you a thousand dollar bonus or a thousand dollars worth of shares in the company, um you still get your thousand dollars worth of benefit. It's treated differently. Of course, one's a cash expense, the other one is a dilution of shares, and at some point they can get massive. There was a time in the late nineties. Doc, you remember where companies were giving out shares like confetti? The share counts were going up, but double-digit rates every single year. More than that, sometimes when just you know, um, small small startups were were literally handing them out like like lollies. Um, and that that actually does hurt, and there was a, a change made to the accounting regulations actually in, in, in um, as a result of that, including uh, people like Warren Buffett put their hand up and said, "Hey, this is getting a bit silly, pretending it not doesn't cost anything. It was never actually disclosed as a cost to the business. They said it's growing number of shares, and so unless you actually did the math, you never saw it in the statements. This in theory profitable company was actually you know <laughs> handing out half of itself to to employees. So, it, it but it, it's a it's a viable and, and reasonable tool to incentivize staff to align the owners." Of the company with the staff because they can become owners, so in theory it's it's right, it's good for a lot of good reasons. I would love to actually see companies choose to buy back stock they're issuing to make sure they are disciplined about what they're doing. It just it just adds a bit of extra, you know, cost to the to the not mental cost, right? If the CEO's got to say, well, I've got to go buy these shares on the market and then give them away, do I really want to do that? It might make them think twice. It's always easy to give away something that doesn't belong to you. If I give away shares in another company, hey, what's it hurt me? Um, but generally speaking, that's that's the approach in terms of the sh- the size matter. Unless you got a lot of shares in the company, it'll round down to very very small amounts of money. Um, if you work for Woolies, Woolies could never give you enough shares for your ownership to be above something like zero point zero 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 one percent. This is a you know multi billion dollar company. If you own I don't know a thousand, a couple thousand, even ten thousand, twenty thousand dollars worth of shares, um, the fraction of that is just absolutely tiny. Fun, fun exercise to do by the way. No harm in doing it. Um, but that's how you would that's how you'd go about it. Anything else on that? Well, no, I think you covered it. Good question, Harry. Thank you. All right, interesting question, mate, from Mark. Now, Mark starts. This is always. This is always a Mark. You're, not, you're obviously not in marketing, mate, because you've sold this one by saying, "Hi, Scott. Long question and spreadsheet. <laughs> if it's too boring, you are free not to use it." <laughs> um, so, I, I, lo- I love it, Mark. I love the honesty up front. You're clearly not in marketing, mate. Um, otherwise, you'd start with. This is a really, really important and exciting question. And by the way, there's a spreadsheet at the end. So, <laughs> I love the. I love the. Uh, I love the frank and uh, and uh, honest upfront nature of it, but. He says, that I do think it's really important to let people know. So here it is. Dear Scott and Doc, my question is too long for fun banter. Sorry. Well, Mark, we've already thrown some banter in, mate. So, well, uh, you know, we'd, you, there was a challenge you gave us and we rose to it. Whether it's a, a good, we rose successfully to it or not it's a different question. Our can answer that. He says, I just sold my ETF Asia. So the Asia is the Asian Tigers ETF. The code is actually A-S-I-A, i.e. Asia. He said, I love them and they're my best performing ETF and I wanted to build them up. It covers 100 tech tigers in Taiwan, India, Korea, and China. All listed on their own exchanges except for the Chinese companies where a few are listed on the Hong Kong exchange, but most of the Chinese companies are listed on US exchanges. I In the US, they're called ADRs. I ain't heard of that one either. Now, we are going to stop because we'll define it now, so we have to go back to it later. An ADR is an American Depository Receipt. And effectively, it's, it, it's like a promissory note. It's, it's the equivalent to a, lim- a number of shares that are traded on a home exchange. In Australia, we have CDIs, chest depository interests, which are the same thing. So if you own ResMed shares, for example, you actually don't. You own ResMed CDIs if you buy them in Australia. And that just entitles you to the equivalent ownership in the U.S., so, it's a, it's a way of having a, an interest in the same company, um, just trade it on a different exchange. So, mate, no, nothing to, to fear from that one in and of itself. The ADRs themselves, super well known, super current. Westpac has an ADR on the, the New York Stock Exchange, or the pink sheets, actually, I think it probably is. Um, I think NAB does too. There's a lot of us from PHP, might I think.
1: It's like Commonwealth Bank also. Commonwealth thing. Bank,
0: there you go. So, you know, it's, it's not unusual. It's completely reasonable. Now, the rest of your question, though, is worth discussing, but just to get the ADRs out of the way. So. You say, the Chinese company listed on US exchanges. It's only in the um, <laughs> in the spreadsheet of the ETF. So the ETFs have spreadsheets, just to finish marks, where they show you what they own, that one finds the actual exchanges, and he has attached a spreadsheet. Chinese companies on the American exchanges make up over 30% of the ETF. Ten cent on the Hong Kong exchange adds another 9.5%. But the reason why I bought Asia was to be diversified outside Australia and the USA. If China is booted off the US markets, the stocks would be delisted, wouldn't they? I'm an investor, not a gambler, so I sold and will wait till things become clear, even though I might lose some upside. So he asked a whole lot of questions. He asked about the, uh, some exchange code, UWN. We won't go into that now, Mark. Um, it is a little bit esoteric, but uh, that they, the ADR is the important thing. So they're listed on, uh, on US exchanges with American depository receipts. He says, why can't I buy the shares on the Chinese exchanges? What's the downside to the ETF if companies are delisted from the USA? And did I do a reasonable thing? <laughs> so I love that question. He finishes off with, Mark, hashtag France is in summer and hashtag vive le croissant. So um, there you go, that's that's long live the croissant is how I would normally pronounce it. But I'm trying my, trying my French accent, my best French accent. Vive le croissant. How did I go? That is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost certainly not, but thank you. All right, so we've done the ADR. We won't do the UW and UN exchange codes because that's just a little bit hysteric. But he says, why can't I buy the shares on the Chinese exchanges? Now, Doc, I have a, I have a guess here that the market... The people doing the ETF just didn't want to have to deal with China. Is there anything regulatory that stops them doing it? Why, why would they? Why would they use US-based ADRs, not actually the the actual stocks listed in China?
1: So I don't know the answer. I have a feeling that it is not directly. It's not very easy for foreign investors to own uh, own stock directly. Right. So when I said foreign investors, even in, including the ETF mm-hmm. providers, uh, to own stocks directly in the Chinese market. Right. Um, I mean, if the market was open, I would I would think a lot of people would be buying directly yeah, yeah. the the uh, the Chinese uh, listed entities instead I mean, of buying the ADRs. Even
0: Alibaba, I have a feeling, I think this is still right, is actually, it's either are there a Hong Kong or Cayman's listed entity you actually own shares in that has some sort of cross shareholding with the Chinese company. Yeah. Most Chinese investments made outside China are made with some sort of derivative investment vehicle. I
1: think so. There's some rule maybe that says that you know, a certain percentage of ownership can't be outside of, uh, uh, can't sense. be a non, uh, non-citizen of China. That makes sense. And I think, this, I don't know. I'm not, so I think that's the rule. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not 100%, 100, 100% across yeah, that right. um, in terms of what the legalities there are. Yep. There, there's got to be some legalities there.
0: Fair enough. Yeah. Now the the question he asks is kind of the key one for me. The What's the downside of the ETF if the companies are delisted from the USA?
1: Yeah, so there is downside there for sure. Like if the companies are delisted, I mean you'd probably get cash back for those mm. being delisted. Yep. Um, but if the, if a chance that the companies are going to be delisted, probably the stocks would you know would um would also reciprocate appropriately. And it'll be worth a lot less. Right. Um, so a couple of different things, right? One is uh, the thing about so I think we should deal in a couple of things. The thing about not letting certain applications uh, to be available in certain <laughs> markets. Yeah. Now, here's I'll I'll put I'll phrase that in a different way, and it's a very common thing in many other markets. The Indian government, for example, has banned access to WhatsApp. Yeah. Right. Uh, or oh, not sorry, to not to to TikTok. Okay not WhatsApp, right? So many governments uh, regularly have, uh, you know, requests to remove certain apps from the App Store or to block certain apps, and that's pretty common, right? Mm. Uh, It's actually relatively uncommon for that to happen in the US market or even the Australian market, but it you know, it's pretty common in many other markets. So that's that's mm-hmm. that. I would separate the the uh, the logistics of where, why certain apps applications are not going to be available in mm-hmm. certain markets from the potential of these companies being delisted. Um, I think there's a chance that they can be delisted, but I think the possibility that they be delisted is to be relatively low. I think that I look at the delisting threat as a way of increasing transparency because mm-hmm. the... Many of the ADRs they don't play by the same rules that the yeah, uh, right. the the SEC, which enforces um, uh, the you know how companies report and things like that. Mm. Um, they don't exactly play by the same rules, so they're yeah, you know it's yeah. basically getting special treatment, yeah. um, right? And I think they're trying to get them to report or audit and things like that by the same rules, by mm-hmm. the same standards, so that it's a lot more of a uniform market. So I think I rate it as a lower risk. It is a risk that it could happen, yeah. um, you know, and yeah. So, I mean, the Asia ETF has those risks among many other risks. The geopolitical risk is very real in the Asia ETF.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I um, Yeah, look, and Mark, as, you, as you've already highlighted, Doc, nicely, thank you. Mark's alluding to some, some potential grief um, I'm pretty sure Donald Trump himself came out and was talking about delisting companies or holding them to different standards to be listed in the US. Uh, we're all for higher standards of, of uh, transparency and reporting, by the way, so you'll very rarely hear us complain about companies being held to higher standards in the US. Um, standards are probably the, well, almost certainly are the gold standard globally for the amount of information provided um, when it comes to public companies giving information to investors or potential investors through their filings. Australia's pretty good. Um, we're, we're an easy silver medal, um, maybe equal silver. I'm not saying we're the second best in the world, but we're, we're very good. Um, but the US, the amount of, vo- the volume of stuff they have to provide Doc, is huge. Um, and so to some degree, the, you know, asking other companies listed there to hold to that or to achieve that standard is not an unreasonable thing, particularly as it becomes a larger chunk of the US market. I have my suspicions that it's more a political motivation than otherwise for what it's worth, but maybe I'm being too cynical. Um, in any case, it's possible that it happens. And as, as you say, Doc, it's possible these companies get delisted if they choose not to participate. It's a, it's a a The problem is that geopolitics are huge here, right? Like on one hand, you say, well, if they don't participate, that's probably good because they obviously aren't, aren't delivering the standards that are, ex- are expected of them. And so, hey, as an investor, we'd be happy that we don't have to or, or are removed from investing in companies with, with murkier financials. So that's the, that's the that's the optimist. That's the sunny side of the story. The other side is that, again, with the geopolitics at play, trying to play hardball and say, well, Suffy, then we'll go and put them in Hong Kong or somewhere else and try and make that as, a, as part of a play to get you know the kind of center of the financial world dragged a little bit further east, or a little bit further south, depending on which kind of metaphor you want to use here across to Asia or in general, China in particular, say, so, well, we'll do it ourselves then. Um, and again, if China has a long enough time frame, you can imagine a scenario, maybe not the most likely one, where, you know, the Chinese markets, wherever they are, whether they're Hong Kong, China, somewhere else, become a an alternative financial capital. So there's so much geopolitics at play here. It's pretty likely for the most part you would get out without suffering meaningful losses. There won't be no losses because literally if the ADR goes away, there are no buyers for those shares and because of the capital constraints, you actually can't own um you know it's not like you can sell your shares back to chinese buyers at at the same sorts of prices there'll be a whole lot of sellers not a lot of buyers and if you can't sell them to anybody else because they're not listed anywhere else that's a problem of course the adr's may simply you know move from being chinese listed to i'm sorry american listed to the uk or to europe or somewhere else so we're just one of those things we're going to have to see what happens with the with the adr's again you know if they if if tencent or not a bad example if um Alibaba was taken secondary listing to Luxembourg and the Luxembourg exchange allows them to do that. Then the, the ETF may simply just change its listing from the American ADR to some sort of European depository receipt or similar. So lots and lots of things to play out. I, for what it's worth, I, so I've, I've been long worried about this question, Doc, and I've avoided some of these Chinese listed companies to my detriment. And so my advice might actually be, <laughs> don't, don't be me. Um, you've got to be careful in all investing not to overstate or overweight the present clear and present danger, the risk that's right in front of you. Um, again, like we've said many, many times, if you'd stay out of the market because of the Trump election, you've cost yourself 30%. If you stay out of the market because of Brexit, you cost yourself probably 20%. Um, there's always a risk and always a risk not to invest. More often than not, 90 times out of 100, those risks you're trying to avoid actually end up costing you money because they don't come to fruition. So Mark, maybe this happens and maybe you're right to avoid it, but if you stay out of the market every time there's a potential, I mean, every company on our scorecards has risks, right? <laughs> there's there's reasons why company X might go broke or might suffer from its competitors or the share price might fall. If you're saying out of every investment because there's risk in those investments, you never invest in anything. Um, now, I know you're not saying that, Mark, and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but I would encourage you to just think about the probability and the size of the downside versus everything else in your portfolio, everything else you're doing. Uh, because every ETF, every exchange, currency for starters, right? Um, Mark, you're in France from the look of it. Um, maybe, maybe you're still good with your finances in Australia, but in any case, those exchange rates probably have a far bigger impact um, than maybe some of these risks you're looking at. So just just have a think about that. By all means, take the risk into account. I have in the past, as I said, to my detriment. Um, was it wrong? I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe I, I slept better at night. Maybe it's worth doing, but just just recognize there is some cost. So your last question, did I do a reasonable thing? Is it reasonable? Absolutely. Is it optimal? Maybe not. What do you think, Doc? In a couple of words, reasonable, optimal, good idea, bad idea. Well,
1: I think I mean if that makes you sleep better, then that's that's a reasonable thing to do. It's probably not optimal <coughs> if it is, you know, if it's costing you returns uh, on average. But yeah, like I, I mean, I agree with what you said. I, you know, again, if you're if you're fishing in so many different markets and so many different ways, I think you can fish in many different ways. Yeah, and yeah. you, so I think you should fish where you're comfortable, just mm-hmm. making sure that you don't. Uh, oh, as you said, you know, overplay the risk element, right? I mean, exactly. As a company could be delisted, a company could also, like, an American company or a French company or an Australian company, could be told to leave um the chinese market right which might yeah, be exactly. actually be a large market yeah, for right, them right. Well, and which, is a great example right which is a fantastically big risk right yeah. i mean um <laughs> exactly. you know like if uh, if yeah. you asked yeah. nike to leave um china yeah. they'd probably lose 20 25% 30% of their revenue yeah, yeah. right and their production <laughs> <Yeah>. so <laughs> so i think the world is pretty intertwined yeah that's right so right. yeah that's um, yeah. Yeah. yeah so yeah, I think that's it.
0: Very good. Thank you, Mark. Great question there, mate. Really good question. Appreciate it. Question from Ajit, Doc. Ajit says, hi, Scott and Doc. Hope you guys are well. I'm well. Are you still well? I am very well. It's because lunch is coming up? Yeah, lunch is coming yeah. up. Um, he says, uh, this question has been bothering me for a while. Could you help me out? Ajit, you've come to the right place, mate. We do nothing other than help people out here. Or at least that's, our, that's what we're trying to do. When I hear people saying the institutional investors can move the whole market by selling or buying a stock. They buy a stock in large volume that drive the price up and vice versa. What I don't get is, as far as we know, when there is a seller, there must be a buyer. So according to this understanding, when big institutional investors sell or buy a big chunk of stock, there will always be a buyer on the other side. How does that drive the price, but not the other side? Who is a buyer or who is a seller? Cheers and have a good one, Ajit." So he talks about institutional investing. He does put in brackets, which I left out just for the sake of reading the question. Things like big banks, pension funds, mutual funds, capital investors, superannuation funds. So you know when when a big buyer or seller is, in air quotes, moving the market, he asks, well, hang on, someone else is buying the other side of that. How is that possible? There's always a buyer for every seller. And it's true, right? When when, um, one of our former colleagues, Andrew Page, used to love this one, when someone said, why is the market up or why is the market down? The old line from the average uh, analyst was, oh, there's more buyers and sellers, or more sellers than buyers. So, well, how can that be possible? There must be the same number of buyers or sellers by definition. Um, if a trade is completed, someone bought, someone sold, and he's dead right. Majit's asking a similar question. That being said, Doc, there is some truth in the statement that a big seller or a big buyer does move the price. How is that possible if every buyer has a seller?
1: Yeah, so everybody has a seller, but every seller has a price and every buyer has a price, right? And that's what moves the market. Um, like if I want to buy shares of, uh, you know, company ABC at $1 and the, the the seller doesn't want to sell it to me at $1, but I really badly want to buy it, yeah. I might land up paying $1.20. That's a 20% increase in the <laughs> price, right? So that's effectively what happens. Basically, when people say there's buying pressure, it means that the sellers are not willing to let go of the shares at the priced buyers or yeah. at the current price, so the price keeps moving up. And when there's selling pressure, what well, it effectively means that sellers really want to get out at any price, yeah. <laughs> and therefore they will take whatever price at their hand. And right, there's right, you right. know there's selling pressure. There's always a buyer on the other side, and there's always and there's sometimes there's market makers as well. Uh, we, we need to remember that the who provide liquidity in the market, but you know generally there's a buyer to a seller uh, effectively being matched. Um, yeah, and then there's other wonky things that happen. There are short sellers that are uh, there that you know effectively actually create additional liquidity. Uh, but you know, I think are all in the fringes. <clears throat> the thing that matters is there's a buyer and a seller. It's just the price.
0: Yep. No nice summary. You, what you need to think about is if it's like you're, you're a fruit market. If the the apple crop comes in on a Monday morning and there are ten times as many apples as normal all those apples will be sold, right? So there are still as many buyers as sellers, I mean, I guess it's possible they throw some out, but let's let's assume they all get sold. The simple reality, there are so many apples, there's, there's a whole lot of farmers all there at once, lots of sellers in, the, in, our, in our terms here, to your question. And people are like, well, I don't want that many apples. Well, what if I give it to you for, for half the price? I guess I'll buy some more apples. There's good apples left. Okay, well, how about you take it for a quarter of the price? All right, I'll, I'll take your ten apples. Sure, I'll I'll make apple pie. I'll make apple crumble. I'll make apple strudel. I'll you know make stewed apple. I'll I'll <laughs> I'll do whatever. I'll do you know um I'll, I'll use it for I don't know under the house foundations. Um, use it for landfill. At some point, you can find a buy if the price is cheap enough. There's still as many buyers as sellers, assuming the crop gets sold, but the price gets pushed down because the sell the buyers aren't that keen until you really make it worth their while. Similarly, if there was the next Monday. There's only three apples bought to market because that that you know there was terrible apple blight or weather on apple blight's a thing. Let's pretend it is. I'm not a farmer. Clearly, um, yeah. There was a truck breakdown. The truck rolled over and all the apples got spilt. Whatever it is, three apples come to market, and there's ten people and they all desperately want the apple because all their kids want apples in their lunch boxes, and so normally apples sell fifty cents. But you know, there's only three of them there to be sold and. The, the buyers are all bidding over each other because they all desperately want those apples for their kids and so the apple gets sold for $4. Again, same number of buyers, same number of sellers. Three apples get sold and bought but the price goes through the roof because that demand is there pushing the price up. There's a limited amount of supply and in this case, it's imbalance. So yes, there's always as many buyers as sellers but to Doc's point, it's the behavior of those buyers and sellers and what it does to the price, good old Economics 101, supply and demand, that pushes the price around. So hopefully that helps. Any more on that, mate? No, that's it. <laughs> Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Question from Arpett. Now, arpit has got a very long set of questions, but let's get through them, mate, because one's for you. Hey, Scott, love the pod as always. We can get a hand clap uh, emoji, dude. No, I'm going to interrupt there. Go on.
1: He had nothing to say to me. He's about I mean, to. But, like I mean, you know... Look, like, I can complain too. What happens can, to my feelings?
0: It's more, more fun if I complain. Really. Okay, okay, that's good. All right. <laughs> <laughs> to, to be fair to I only because I, you know, mm. he, he did say hello to me. Um, he said this one to me directly, asking mm. about the podcast. But that, that might be why. Okay, could we even that? Sure. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I had two questions. I thought it might be great to discuss. I'll try and keep it brief, but feel free to abbreviate for the show if needed. We will. Thank you, mate. But we're we'll doing almost in full in full detail. Here we go. One, in brackets, possibly for the tech-minded doctor. See, that's you. Okay. Showed you you some love. You you went off way too early there, dude. He was looking after you. He was saying nice things. All right. I did well on Afterpay. Like many naive young souls, I bought some at $16 two years ago and some at $23 during the share purchase plan in January. How do you guys go thinking about letting your winners run versus trimming off some gains when it's done very well? I'm not sure whether I anchored, but when it got to $75, I couldn't help myself. And I sold 40% of it, which I realized would cover my entire cost base, even after tax. But the idea of still holding a bunch of the stock for free was too good to resist, especially as the price went up so fast, it seemed a tad on the optimistic side. It's hard to learn how to know when to sell. There's so many things to think about. Anchoring, trimming, rebalancing, letting the growth stocks run, etc. How does our doctor think about positions as they rise? There you go. Now, by the way, mate, if people are hearing a uh, power saw in the background of this recording, that's because we're doing it at my place. And there is a power saw being operated by the bloke next door. I'm not sure what he's doing, probably cutting something out. If you can't hear any of it, don't worry about it. Pretend we didn't say anything, but if you can, our apologies. Um, unfortunately, we don't have dictatorial powers just yet, nor is my house large enough to be far enough away from the neighbours that uh, we don't hear the power saw. So if you're hearing it, my, my apologies. All right, Doc, how do you think about anchoring, trimming, rebalancing, letting the growth stocks run? How do you think about positions as they rise?
1: This is a great question. There's actually no perfect answer for this one. Uh, and this is, you know, this is one of those difficult questions for which there's no <laughs> perfect answer. Right. So I'll try to give you sort of how I think about it at a high level. Um, number one is... E- e- in general you want to let your winners run and when i say winners it does not mean share price share price can go up but what you really want is if the business is executing and executing well to the thesis then you let it run and you let it do its thing Mm. and eventually i think that generally more more often than not uh works in your favor right that's number one Mm. number two is um if a position like this is again a general very general thought again no specifics but suppose you have a portfolio allocation like you had a decent allocation to say after pay as an example Mm. and now because you know you bought it at like five dollars or whatever. in his case he's lucky enough to buy it at 16 (laughs) um and and then it's roughly gone up like almost four and a half x for him uh it's now around 70 right and if you know and that would mean that his allocation could have actually gone up by a lot Depending on what his rest of the portfolio is doing, right now, if you had five percent allocation at the beginning and now it's like twenty five percent allocation or something like that, that's a that's a big change. Mm. So I think one of the things to think about in a portfolio is how much is too much individual company risk right, because right. there's always company specific risk, there is sector risk, mm. there is geodiversification risk, there is mm. risk. there's currency mm. there's all sorts of risks that you can think of but there is something called company specific risk right which is something could happen to the company the company could, and I'm not saying this about afterpay yeah. company could be a fraud, the company could hit a roadblock, some legislation could come out, something could happen Right. something can always happen right. uh, a pandemic could happen and then transurbans, for example, uh, earnings all of a sudden disappeared mm. because there mm. were no cars on the road as an example or no you know so something can always happen and you yeah. have to be mindful of that risk so yeah. you need to cap that by deciding how much is the maximum that you're willing to allocate right that differs from person to person um my largest allocation today is too large right. uh, uh you know but one rule of thumb that i've heard uh, being battered around is somewhere between 10 and 15 percent is a good Top end mark for most people or for many people. Um, Some people have much larger. My own allocation is much larger than that for my largest position. But um, again, you just need to be mindful of that. That's number one. So, you know, somewhere in the 10, 15% is good. That basically means that you are trimming, uh, but you're trimming for a reason, which allows you to sort of, you know, uh, sleep well at night and, you know, reduce the company-specific risk, right? So maybe it between 10 and 20 percent 20 percent would really be very very high um and again it is high so that that is one way to think about the what, what did I miss did I cover almost everything
0: You uh, yeah it's, it's a question really of just you know how to think about it yeah. the only thing I'd, I'd ask you about mate, is your thought about the whole free money idea do you have I have, I have a view on it so I, I'll, I won't I won't telegraph it but <laughs> I, I will share <laughs> that but I thought I'd ask you first the idea of like selling selling enough so you can cover your tax base and, and your, your cost base yeah. and then kind of let the free money run are yeah, you fair I don't know
1: well there's no such thing as free money because I mean, <laughs> that, that money is all yours right I I mean, whatever afterpay shares. If you have got you know fifty thousand dollars of afterpay shares, it's not free money. It's fifty thousand um, dollars. So this, I don't, I don't subscribe to. kind like, I've heard this around, and it, again, theoretically, does not make any sense. Like mm. a lot, you know. So there is no such thing as house money, mm. right? Um, because it is your money.
0: So let's just unpack this, mate, just quickly. I probably should set this up a little bit better. So there are people who will say. Well, it's already paid back. I put in $10. The shares has gone up to 20 I sell half and I pay back the $10 I spent. So therefore, the only you know, I, I make back my cost base. So yeah. it's now free. And the house money is a casino term of, well- The money I'm now left in the the investment is the money I've already made on the market. It's someone else's money, so it's not a big deal. That therefore I can think less seriously about it. It's less risky. It's less important because, hey, I was free. I didn't have it before, so I can afford to take risk with it because it's the house's money. It's money I've won rather than money I've saved and invested.
1: Yeah, but, but that's, you know, that's that's factually incorrect because well, in my view because I mean your portfolio is your portfolio, right? Your portfolio has a value. That's your what what it is worth. Correct. If you invested $10,000 into Afterpay and it's like worth now it's gone up 5x yep. and it's worth $50,000, well you have $50,000, yep. right? And that $40,000 is like a new car. Yeah, that's um, right. so <laughs> like a nice new car. Yep, yep, yep. So uh, or uh, like you know, um 20 uh, iPhones <laughs> yeah. or something like that right, right. right. so like I mean whatever it is it is your money so I would not think think of it that way uh, I get it why people think about it that way mm-hmm. but it is uh, I would say that's your money and you want to you want to allocate your money appropriately as such that you feel comfortable managing that yeah. fund and you sleep well at night because of your allocations I think that's important
0: I completely agree. I, th- I find the idea of house money abhorrent. Um, not 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 in case; he's doing the right thing. But I understand the, the approach. But the the whole idea that we've convinced ourselves that we can somehow take risk we wouldn't otherwise take if it was in air quotes our money. Um, here's the idea, right? Let's let's say you had two scenarios: one where you had worked really hard and saved a million dollars; the other way, you'd invested ten thousand dollars, and you'd done so well your investment that ten thousand dollars become a million dollars. You've got a million dollars either way. There are two portfolios you own, both with million dollars in them it makes no sense at all to treat one of them with some degree of abandon and the other one with a huge amount of um, conservatism because the way you came back the money was different. If we sold both of those portfolios, well, one one really nice mental trick I like, I don't do it very often, but it's a nice way to think about it is, imagine if your portfolio was sold at the end of every trading day and you had to buy the stocks back tomorrow, would you buy the same stocks? And your point, Doc, it's, it's $50,000, real, it's real money, right? We don't know that ARPA's made 50 grand, by the way, we just use those as a, as a placeholder. If you made 50 grand, like 50 grand, you can buy the iPhones. You can sell it and buy woolly shares. You can sell it and buy more afterpay shares tomorrow. You can do anything with that money. The fact that you made it by investing well, that's kind of what we're supposed to do, right? The whole idea of investing and compounding over time is you're supposed to eventually have most of the money in your portfolio, if you're doing well enough over multiple decades, is the air quotes house money. But by definition, it's compounding, right? That's what we're doing it for. Um, doesn't it make it? You should take any risks? No, because this money is real money. You'll spend it you know, <laughs> you'll really spend it. And frankly, if you've got that cash, you should be looking at the future and saying, if I have fifty thousand dollars in afterpay shares or Wooly shares or Berkshire Hathaway shares or Apple shares, um, I own Berkshire, Doc owns Apple. Um, you, you know, you you're literally saying, Okay, well, I could I couldn't I could sell this right now and buy whatever other company I wanted to do to maximize my investment. And by the way, here's the other thing. If you made a 50 grand profit in afterpay, you sold it, and you spent that money to buy shares in Apple you think about that money differently if you talk about house money, right? Because it goes from house money to money I invested in Apple, that's my cost base. Just because the cost base in theory is different doesn't mean your future for that money. You should be simply saying, how do I make the most of this 50 grand moving forward? What is the best investment I can own or multiple investments I can own to maximize the returns from this 50 grand over the next year, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years? Um, that's, that's the only question that matters. So please, please, please ignore the house money, free money idea. Assume it's all yours. Assume you worked hard for it because if it goes away, you're gonna to have to work hard to get it back. So <laughs> treat it, treat it that way, um, and don't, don't, uh, don't, don't get too. Um, I want to say you're not being reckless, but just, just be thoughtful about how you do it. Second question, mate. He says only if it's relevant for the show. It's a tad niche, but we'll go with it because it's a really good question. I think other listeners might have a question. He says, I've got two sets of units. By units, he means two groups of shares, not units in literal apartments. Uh, One with a capital gains tax discount and one without. Is there any situation it would ever make sense not to choose the CGT discount units as the ones to sell off? Now, let's put this in context. So we know that investors get a discount on their tax if you hold the shares for more than 12 months. You pay half the tax rate which is not nothing, right? So um, his question is, I've got two lots of shares. One will be taxed at a lower rate because I've owned them for more than 12 months. The second group will be taxed at a higher rate because I haven't owned them for 12 months yet. And he's saying, well, obviously you would assume you'd always sell the units with the lowest tax, right? Because who wants to pay more tax than you have to? But he's saying, is there any circumstance in which you wouldn't do it? Is there any circumstance in which you'd sell the higher tax units first? Doc, what do you reckon? Good question, right?
1: It's a good question, actually. Um... I don't know actually the answer to that largely mm. because I mostly do like a first in, first out FIFO. Um, and the other reason is I, you know, if I'm selling most of the time, I'm selling because my thesis is completely broken, in which case I'm just selling a lot. Um,
0: <laughs>
1: it's, yeah, I don't know that. I actually don't know the answer to this one. Okay.
0: I don't have a strong view either, but I can imagine – the only time I can imagine doing it would be if you had a situation where you had a capital loss you wanted to offset the tax against and you wanted to offset the maximum amount of tax payable on that loss. But again, even then, you could carry the loss forward multiple years anyway and eventually do it when you needed it. So I can't imagine sorry where that would be necessary if you had for some reason you wanted to or you had to soak up a tax loss earlier. Um, that's the only time I could think of, Doc, that I would actually do it that way. Um, you've got to pay the tax either way eventually, so it's kind of just delaying the inevitable, but hey, when it comes to tax, delay as long as you can legally. Um, I think, yeah, I, I, can't, I, I said, only if you wanted to soak up a tax loss in a hurry, because you have to do it eventually, but again, you'd still want to kind of like leave it as long as you possibly could. So I still think I'd, I'd probably always sell the lowest tax parcel first, but um, I would say, well, the, actually, uh, the only, the only way say, I would say, sorry, just quickly, it, it depends entirely on the tax, uh, the cost base of the shares. So far more importantly is, so I should have done this up front, just occurred to me. Um, CGT discount, you always want to pay a lower tax rate, but in two circumstances, if you had, and yours are, your cost prices are reasonably similar, so it wouldn't apply to you here. But if you'd bought shares at, uh, I'll pick some numbers to make my life easier, right? Let's say you bought shares at a dollar and you bought shares a year later at $99 and the share price was currently 100 bucks. Now, you might, you know, the tax rate on the second lot of shares will be will be higher because you are um, you know, it's a short-term holding, but you only made a dollar in capital gains versus the $99 in capital gains in the other ones. So the dollars worth of tax you're paying are very very different. Does that does that make sense? Doc? It's kind of, so, you want to look at the dollar value of the tax you have to pay, not the tax rate you have to pay. And in that case, you want to pay the the smallest dollars worth of tax. So, if you got a, if you got a massive parcel with a tiny tax rate, um, or, or a small parcel with a massive tax rate, it still might be worth you paying the the higher the, the higher percentage, which might actually be less dollars worth of tax. I don't have to explain that very well. That
1: makes sense. It's a little bit convoluted, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But focus yeah. on the amount of right. uh, amount of tax you're paying. Correct, not the, not the percentage. Not the percentage. Yeah, you've done a much level. better than idea. Yeah. Thank
0: you. Yes, so do yeah. do the maths up, and if if whichever one has the least tax dollars payable, that's the one I would sell if I were you.
1: I would just say this at a high level. If you have this problem, yeah. It's a good problem. It's It's one of those very good problems to have. Most of the time when I'm selling, I'm just reporting a loss. It doesn't really matter. It's just a loss.
0: I would like as many of those tax problems as I could find. Yeah,
1: I would like to have those problems too.
0: (laughs) Warren Buffett once famously said something along the lines of maybe you'll find an investor who won't go ahead with something because the amount of tax he'd have to pay when it succeeds. Hmm. If you do, send him my way. I'll happily take that burden. I think that's a pretty good way to think about it. All righty. Question from G-S-T-E-R, the G-S-T-E-R. You haven't said the g I'm going to call you the G-Star. Hi, Captain and Doc. Love the show, especially the special, question mark, question mark, question mark, Sunday mailbag edition. That's probably fair. I'm hoping this may feature. Guess what it does? I'm in my mid-40s and I've been listening and subscribing to Motley Fool's services in the UK, the US and Australia for the last 15 years. Thank you very much, G-Star. We appreciate that. Over that time, being foolish has paid off. And through dollar cost averaging and consistent investing, I'm beginning to see some very real results. And they are compounding meaningfully now. And he gives me an emoji. Is that dollar signs in his eyes, Doctor? Yeah, he has like dollars yeah, in his dollar mouth. Signs.
1: eyes, mouth, everywhere.
0: Jeezer, I, I, I love the question, dude. If you make me describe emojis, it's not going to be very fun radio. <laughs> so let's, let, let's move on. But he says, I'm starting to wonder about how much I would need to retire and maintain my current lifestyle. Do you or the doc know of any good online retirement fund calculators that will be able to help me understand how close I am to this dream? In brackets, perhaps pipe dream. Thanks, G Now, in the in the common the, kind of the, the reasonably recent but very impressive line of great hashtags, mm. we get hashtag get insta on doc rather than get doc on insta. So I'm liking that. And hashtag get Scott off doc. So I'm tipping that Jesus uh, on your side, mate. doesn't want me to give you grief about Instagram. I love
1: this. This is great. <laughs> I, you know, I love these uh, hashtags.
0: Get Insta on Doc and get Scott off Doc. Fair enough. So there's on, there's off. There's You mm. want me to leave you alone? Mm. Of course, never going to happen. So Jesus, thank you. But um, <laughs> hashtag get Doc on Insta remains my favorite hashtag. Mm. Only by a small amount. We had some very, very funny ones. Mm. Um, so thank you for the hashtags and thank you for the question. I don't know any particular... Well, so here's my thing about calculators, mate. It depends on the assumptions, right? You you have a you have a very famous line stolen from somebody else about models being yeah. useful and accurate. Tell me that tell me that yeah, line. So again. The
1: George Box Box line's statistician, famous statistician, his line is all models are wrong, only some are useful and the models are wrong because they have assumptions and every model has assumptions. But you, you want to have Models that tell you something useful. So you need to use the correct model to actually, and the model in this case, probably varies from person to person by a big
0: margin. It does, but it also, it also varies massively by the person putting the model together. So I've seen some numbers that are literally as much as two or two and a half X difference in terms of the amount of money they say you need to retire. It depends on what growth rate of your assets, what income you take, what the inflation rate is that you expect, how long you're going to live. You can, I, I honestly just, I could, I could give you a set of numbers which were defensively, Compiled, I won't say so. you know, the best possible outcome. Anywhere from $200,000 to $2 million on what assumption you wanted to make on things like cost in, in retirement, when you retire, how long you retired for, how long things compound, how fast they compound, all that good stuff. So that said, Doc, for all of that, do you have a rule of thumb or a thought process or a suggestion or some advice to G-Store on how to think about how much money he needs in retirement?
1: I don't know. Like I haven't actually really thought about this very carefully, but like I mean uh, – I would think a modest retirement, assuming somebody retires at 65 and is going to live. Here's the other problem: is you don't really know how long you're going to live. Right. But uh, and that sort of <laughs> is changing by the minute. Um, but if somebody retires at 65 and is going to live until 85, so they've got 20 more years mm. to live. Mm. Um, my rule of thumb would be that you'd probably be spending for a couple somewhere around 60,000, 70,000 dollars a year. Nice. Right. And this is assuming that you've paid for... Uh, yeah. You know, uh, and this is this is, I think this is a good retirement at sixty thousand level for a couple maybe, not, maybe sixty, so. sixty-five, seventy thousand. dollars you know, if you're paid for your house and everything, you're paying your bills and you're basically having fun. Um at and, and assuming that you're not really buying it, well, you might have to actually buy a new car, which can cost actually the entire fifty, six thousand. So maybe hundred thousand is actually probably the right number. <laughs> so, so, assume hundred thousand dollars and assume that you would spend that for twenty years, that's a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> that comes to something like two million, right?
0: And here's the thing, right? So everyone has uh, what what I've seen most calculators use, which I actually quite like, is rather than choosing a dollar value, most retirement calculators suggest about seventy five percent of your income pre-retirement as as a, as a as an assumption as what you would need to live on in retirement. And I like that because for some people who are listening to us who are earning forty five thousand dollars a year, they're saying one hundred grand in retirement, man. If I go that now, I'd be happy. I could I could do with you know I can live on fifty or sixty. That'd be perfect. Other people listening to us who are high-flying corporate lawyers driving their Ferraris around like, you kidding? I can't live on less than a million dollars a year. I've got to pay for this Ferrari. Um, the, the number for every individual based on your chosen lifestyle, where you live in the country, um, number of dependents, if any, your dreams for retirement whether there's holidays or new cars or caravans or whatever else you're going to do, the, it, it literally is a piece of string question. But most retirement... Calculate, as most advisors will say, assume something like 75% of your pre-retirement income because your lifestyle is not gonna change dramatically. If you are a frugal person now, you're probably not gonna blow it. And if you're if you're a, uh, a reasonably lavish person now, you're probably not gonna all of a sudden discover frugality in retirement. So, or if you if, if you do it, it's because it's forced on you because you haven't got enough money left over. Um, so think about about three quarters in retirement. And again, it depends how you fund that, right? Like in a perfect world, we have a service called Everlasting Income. And the idea of that is we're never going to sell, if we can, if we can avoid it, a single share to fund lifestyle. So effectively, the portfolio is there to just spit out cash. Now, if if we're right and we invest well, that portfolio will literally outlive me because it's only be everlasting. We're only only using the dividends for income. We're not using anything else. And so again, if you think about how that might work through, and by the way, it's some nice franking credits, by the way, so don't forget to include those. Um, if you've got enough... Asset value by retirement, you can effectively live forever, and you never need to draw it down as long as the return or the the um, the kind of percentage that you take out as cash is sustainable based on the dividends or some capital growth that you're selling down. So that's kind of it is a bit it is a bit piece of string. Um, your current lifestyle again, well, I mean, essentially, Gister, if you've paid everything offer at the moment, you want to spend the same dollars in retirement as you want now then you have to have the exact same dollar value of income. So that's your first question. Most advisors say 75%, but if you're saying current lifestyle with all of the current expenses you're using, then that would be the same income as you're earning now. And work that backwards in general. If you, to be to be absolutely self-sufficient forever, independently wealthy as the phrase goes, never have to work. And assuming you're not going to bet on dying early, then you want to be able to generate about a return of something between five and 10%. To get that money you're earning now. So let's say you're earning. Let me make my life easy, Doc. Let me say. Let's say you're earning 50 grand a year now, and you want to get that in retirement as well. Then, if you're going to earn a 10% rate of return, you're going to need half a million dollars in retirement assets. And take 10% return. Take out the five grand a year, fifty grand a year, and spend that money. If you're only going to get seven or eight percent in retirement, though, you're going to need something closer to seven hundred thousand dollars. So just as, as the numbers go up, obviously the return comes down, um, and vice versa. So think about that. In a perfect world. At Everlasting Income, we're not, this is not a plug for the service because it's not open right now for new members, though feel free to email us and we can uh, sort you out. Um, at Everlasting Income, we take a rate of 4% plus franking credits out of that portfolio. So we've got a million dollars we invested. We take out $40,000 a year and we add the franking credits on top of that, which gets it to something closer to 60 And that's the way we work. So we'll never, we never plan to, again, no promises, uh, no guarantees because we can't, we're not allowed to give that. Um, we plan to hopefully take a $60,000 income out of that portfolio, never selling a share, and therefore it becomes literally everlasting. It's its own perpetual motion machine. Um, so that's how we would do it. If you need a 60 grand a year, you didn't want to sell the capital, you need a million dollars to start with, and then you can make your own adjustments from there. Just remember, of course, if you're eating into capital, you are limiting by definition the length of life you can afford to take that retirement from. So if, you live for, if you're going to live for 20 years, you live for 40, you may well run out of money at some point. Equally, if you take out too little, you'll have this massive nest egg, but never spend a buck. So... I hate to give you a terrible answer, Gista, but my honest answer is if you want to be absolutely independent in retirement, I would aim for no more than 5% of your capital base every year as as income, either capital gains or dividends. And so to do that, you want to multiply your current income by 20 because one, 5% is you know, one twentieth of 100% obviously. So take your current income, multiply it by 20 and that's how much you would need if you never wanted to draw down another dollar to fund your retirement lifestyle. After that, you can start to make adjustments. Well, maybe I'll take, bring down a little bit less. Maybe I can lower my cost of living. If you can drop your cost of living by 75%, you retire a hell of a lot earlier. Any more on that, Doc? No, sir. I think that's good. Thank you, G. So we appreciate the question, man. A really good one. A question from Big Pops on Twitter. <laughs> hey, Big Pops. Uh, interesting question. with a, with a It's part question, part comment, Doc. So we'll we'll take it as a comment, but I will ask you to comment on the comment. Uh, it says, uh, at TMF Scott P. We'll give our Twitter handles later, but he addressed it to me. Hey bud, question for the podcast. In light of countries now looking at banning TikTok and Tencent having large influence in social media platform Reddit and more and the clear knowledge that all Chinese companies in the end are beholden to the Chinese Communist Party, in this age of information warfare and China's obvious push for dominance, are you still comfortable with, uh, with sorry, are you comfortable with still large Chinese influence in companies and their purchase of property in Australia? Seems to me... This should be more harshly scrutinised. This is as much a, polit- a geopolitical question as it is an economic one, but I think to Big Pop's point, the governments around the world are starting to take a little bit of a different, more interventionist view on what China's investing in, what they're doing, how they're running things, their influence on land holdings, companies and everything else. So let me throw the question to you first, Doc. Are you comfortable owning businesses with decent Chinese shareholdings? And should there be some government action taken to maybe to dial things back a little bit?
1: So the the two different things. I think if you take an optimistic view, you would think that um I guess the main point of difference that we would have, say, between Australia or you know other OECD countries and China, would be their governing structure, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the differences, and the key differences, is if you have a party, or if you have, if you have a governing system that essentially ensures that somebody can govern for life, versus a governing system where we can basically ensure that the, you know, um, mm. RPM is not elected next time, uh, <laughs> I'm not again. That's not a, that's not a political statement, I but I'm saying right. bas- well, we have I, the choice. Well, yeah, you have the choice, right? You have yeah. the choice of choosing yeah. a leader. Yeah. Uh, Every so often, and uh, they have to essentially answer the court of uh, you know the public. So I think that is the higher level tension. I think, Um, and. I think that's a good tension to have because of all the systems that exist. Uh, we know that, well, no system is perfect, including democracy, because, I mean, yeah. you know, you, you, somebody could win by 51% versus 49%. What, what about the 49% that voted for somebody else? Right, right, right? exactly. Yes, so, yeah. mm, I, mean, I mean, there's that, right? Just
0: squeaking over the line doesn't exactly make it the overwhelming... Canada exactly. It, yeah. So and,
1: and then that and then and, and the and the winning combo can then make all the decisions that they wanted in contravention to what the other 49% right, wanted. Exactly, yeah. And actually, that is a very common uh, occurrence all across all democracies because you know most of the time people are winning on the margins, right?
0: I can't remember a time when Australian government was returned with more than 55% of the vote. I'm sure it must have happened from time to time, but it's really, really rare. It's very often 51, 49, 52, 48, something like that.
1: Yeah, and, and Australia is, is really a rare example in the world because it's probably one of the few countries where voting is compulsory?
0: Yes, true. Right? Don't if want. you if you don't well, vote Yeah, don't. well that I mean, makes it, a huge difference. Yeah. I mean, in the US <laughs> and the UK, people win with something like 24% of the population voting for them. Yeah,
1: because like maybe 50% of the public actually <laughs> did not vote. <laughs> exactly. So, um or, or, or the voting. So so that's the, I think the difference. I think the difference it's basically that's a, a point. um it's a, I a cul- I wouldn't even call it cultural. I think it's it's a it's an ethos thing of what the democratic System allows versus Mm. does not allow i think that's the issue does that mean that you like uh, i wouldn't avoid like you know investing in chinese companies just for that reason largely Mm. because i think at a very high level i would think that um it is in everybody's interest that china is part of the society of the world Mm. and it's Mm. in china's interest that china is part of the society of the world and we are so right now i think the world is so intertwined it's so difficult to just you can't Extricate yeah, man, one about? country. Yeah, you can't carve out. There's no such carve-out mechanism. Mm-hmm. It is not possible. It's not in anybody's interest. Um, so you know, me, you know, people make two steps left, and the other pe- mm-hmm. people make two steps, you know, towards each other, and you sort of find a common ground. I think that's that's my view on that. That said, like I mean, um I'm not a massive fan of, like, uh, I'm a, I'm not a massive fan of overregulation and there's over you know, yeah. an overregulation does not necessarily mean that I'm pointing to like China actually like I mean there's there's regulation th- there's red tape everywhere right and sometimes the red tape is used by bureaucrats sometimes the red tape is used by government right and it's, yeah. it's not it's just used yeah. in every other country yeah. in the world so um, I, I think if if there is that sort of system in place, then it only hinders information dis, uh, dissemination, and that, in my opinion, is, is a problem. Um, would I be too concerned about? Like, I mean, it's it's a two-edged sword, right? I mean, mm. we could say that we don't want uh, um, um, China to buy anything in Australia, but then at the same time, that's also bringing in capital, right? That that capital comes in is actually a like, I mean, there is yep. there's a it's, yep. it's 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 a um uh, it's a barter deal, right? Somebody's coming and buying the land that nobody else actually internally wanted to buy. Right. And and for that you actually get cash. With that cash, you could do something else. So it's it is not that somebody's doing somebody a favor. Um it is it is the case that there is a mutual agreement. You know, nobody's mm-hmm. forcing um an Australian, you know, landowner to sell their land to right, right, a right. Chinese buyer, yep. right? Yep. Well, if that is the buyer and you wanted to sell, and that mm-hmm. is the buyer available mm-hmm. who's paying the highest price, you're right. going to sell to that buyer. So I think it's, it, I think it's, it's. You need to by be, the
0: way, if you've got a foreigner paying top dollar and the Australian doesn't want to, that's actually creating more value for the country because you've got actually influx of, of capital at the, you know, the, the top dollar buyer. You know, you actually you're actually taking that capital at a good price.
1: Yeah, uh, and I think another thing that people like so. I think that at margins things mm. matter, but I think what another thing that people don't realize is exactly the point you're making the influx of capital from mm-hmm. outside that is the capital that did not exist in this country correct. that is actually coming in that cup capital is now going to circulate in this country it's actually good for the country yeah, right correct. that is correct. why we encourage foreign that's why every country wants foreign direct investment because it is the capital that is not in this country that is coming to this country and where the, the word this refers to insert country New Zealand every country wants to invest so I think you know it's nothing as black and white um um like mm. that um yeah so i mean there, there'll there'll be things like you know would you want national assets of like you know critical assets to be owned by foreign country uh, foreign countries corporations maybe not mm. um you know uh, there might be some some things there that, mm. that you you know if it's like you know, do you want your electricity grid to be owned by I don't know even do you want it to be owned by America probably not right I nice. mean you want your electricity grid probably to be owned by you know some sort of structure that allows for its integrity to be maintained you know that's, that's yep. so I don't know like yep. I, I think um, yeah there are this is a very complex topic
0: it's hugely complex uh, Big Pops so I'm going to give you my view I, I probably agree with Doc um so here's the thing, I think, so information is different from everything else in my mind in the sense that it does potentially provide unlawful competitive advantage to another country, right? So spying is what we're talking about here, and that's kind of the, you know, and, and or maybe information warfare, as you rightly point out, the likes of using TikTok for a particular purpose. I think we, we need to separate between ownership and influence. I think that's, you know, I would have the same conversation around privatization of public assets for what it's worth too. Um, Hugely emotive topic, but you don't have to own it to regulate it, right? So if, you know, people are saying, oh, well, if the government owned the electricity companies, then it would be different because dot, dot, dot. There's actually no need for a different answer on that one, right? (laughs) Whether governments are really cool. They get to make laws for private businesses or private people. There's no reason why they couldn't have said to any asset that's being sold, you must run under these rules, which are the rules we would also apply ourselves if we owned it. So you don't need those that the ownership structure doesn't need to matter in terms of the the influence on the nation, right? For, for privatised assets, um, and again that that can be emotive for some people. If you're having an emotive response to that right now, just have a think about that because. As I said, there's no, you know, other other than a purely ideological philosophical perspective, um, whether Telstra is owned privately or publicly, the government made the rules about the NBN. It just did, right? Um, Poles and wires, same thing. You can make decisions about those things. Privatization doesn't have to. Now, it can come with lax laws, but that's a different question. That's the question about laws rather about the ownership. And that's where, you know, it is a different thing. Same with the China question, using the analogy for the China question, because... You know, if 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 here's the thing, right? Let's say you have a really really terrible um Mr. Burns style billionaire in Australia who buys up a whole lot of farmland in the Northern Territory. Just to pick out just to pick out an example, right? Not talking about anyone in particular. Just let's assume there was there was someone who was. Maybe, let's say it's me. Let's say I make a fortune investing. I turn to Mr. Burns and I buy a whole lot of farmland in the Northern Territory. Whether that's me as some horrible evil Australian billionaire or the horrible evil Chinese billionaire. The, the the ownership actually doesn't matter, right? If I, if I treat the land or the cattle or the people terribly, just because I happen to have a different nationality, different passport, should make no difference to the laws that are applied. If I'm doing something wrong with that land, the government should come down on me like a ton of bricks, same as they should if it was a Chinese or an American or an English or an Indian owner. They should say, this is what we do. This is how we do it. These are the rules in our country. You must abide by those rules. I don't see a problem with the Chinese owning the land any more than I do with an Australian owning the land because we kind of... It, the question we don't or the, the thought we don't consciously have is on if they're australian they'll do the right thing and sometimes that's true but there are some spectacularly wonderful chinese people and some spectacularly evil australian people and vice versa and so you know if, if an australian was buying chinese land would it necessarily be a horrible thing for the land or the people of china or the businesses in china not necessarily no i mean if i did it i'm a nice bloke great if doc did and he's a bastard well that's going to cost him but the, the nationality doesn't need to matter I think to some degree, we have, courtesy of our politicians and, and some of our uh, less nuanced media, very easily created bogeymen from different nationalities, right? It used to be the Russians. For a while, it was people from the Middle East. Now it's China. Um, it'll be someone else next time. And that's kind of the, I think we need to be a little bit careful about how we interpret those things because there is nothing inherently good or bad about individual nationalities or people or, or interests, Um and as Doc, as Doc says, if, if Australians don't want to pay as much for the asset, someone wants to pay over the odds, we get money for that. You know, we, we get to sell to the highest bidder. Um, so I think that you know, unless, we're, unless there's a character test for every owner of every asset in the country, uh, including bad Australians, by the way, um, just because they happen to have an Australian passport doesn't make them better or worse corporate citizens than someone without one. Now, as I said, different for information, so different for our online stuff. We know about the Huawei stuff. We know about the TikTok stuff right now. I'm still not convinced that's not partly at least political, and I wonder whether that goes away in four months' time after the election. Time will tell. Um, but but you know, realistically, I think that's the question of does it matter so much that. China's own X percent of company Y. I don't think. It, I just don't think it does. I don't see an obvious linkage. Now we do know the CCP will absolutely do things for their own national interests but they can only do so to the extent that's allowed by the Australian government, right? And, and if you say, well, the Chinese government's too big to do that, well, guess what? If they're going to use military force, they'll come and get us anyway. They're not going to buy our assets first. They're going to come and take them. So, you know, to, to imagine that somehow, you know, the, the Chinese Communist Party will inf- exert influence, undue influence um, on top of our regulations just because they own it versus controlling it some other way. Again, the Huawei stuff was about, hey, there might be stuff in the, in the stuff they sell us. They don't have to own the company. If, they, if that spying allegation is true, they don't even, they're actually, we're, we're paying them for stuff they might spy on us with. So look, I think a long, long-winded answer. I, 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 don't think the Chinese are inherently as owners of assets any worse than any other large owner of any other assets in time. Um, I mean, the the Poms bloody set off nuclear weapons in the middle, <laughs> in the middle of South Australia, right? And I don't, I don't. It's not funny. Um, but the, you know, we, we we kind of we're fearful or concerned about or worried about or distrustful of the Chinese. Um, I don't. I don't think the uh, the Chinese have have a monopoly on uh, on having done terrible things to people they deal with, uh, whether they are colonies or not, over the last you know couple of centuries. So, I, I get you know we should be careful. Of course we should. Governments should absolutely be mindful of this stuff. I just don't think ownership needs to be an issue. Um, and if their influence on social media is, I mean, look, you know, frankly, the US's own election was probably messed around with by Facebook existing, right? Um, the US aren't going to ban Facebook because it was maybe used inappropriately for the last election, uh, but they're banning TikTok maybe because it's Chinese owned. I think you start to get a little bit too clever, a little bit too cute um, on that one. Not you personally, Big Pops, but just you know, people generally who have that view. So uh, I think government should be absolutely aware of local and overseas influence. I think we should absolutely always want transparency, decent lawful conduct. Um, I don't think that should impact necessarily the ownership of the asset or even... Where the influence comes from, the regulation should be there. Whether it's hypothetically Clive Palmer who wants to influence an election, or Vladimir Putin, or um, Xi Jinping out of out of China, uh, I think you know we should be we should be assuming uh, that any or all of that is inappropriate because it is, not because the nationality of the person or the, the company is involved. Any more on that, Doc? I have nothing to add. <laughs> you have nothing to add. Probably best to mate. We're done. We're gonna have some lunch. What do you reckon? I'm hungry. Good. Let's do it. But before we do. We want to remind our listeners that they can actually well they can subscribe but also they can get in touch with us. And Doc is not yet on TikTok. He's not yet on Reddit or Instagram or WhatsApp or Tinder apparently as you were telling us on Friday. So I'll, I'll assume that's true. I'm not going to said not going to download the app and find out because that's going to me in a world of trouble with the wife. It's hard. I, I I think I don't know. I I hope my wife would would believe me if I told her I was doing it to make sure you were on Tinder. Let <laughs> <have> them <to> try <laughs> <laughs> this this isn't Video Fools, unfortunately, but the look doc gave me was like, good luck with that, dude. <laughs> and it's probably right too. All right. So, so because he's not, you're going to have to go to Twitter where you can find him at Anirban Mahanti. You can find me at TMF Scott P or you can find the Motley Fool's corporate account at The Motley Fool AU. Follow us. Come and say good g'day. Um, we tweet some fun stuff from time to time. I tend to get a bit, uh, a bit, a bit broad in my interest on Twitter. Doc, a little, little narrower, but still lots of fun. Follow us both for, for a laugh and for some interesting insights. I think, I think it's fair to say, um, that's always fun. And of course, to ask your questions, either uh, mentioning us with our Twitter handles or send us a DM, or as the cool kids apparently say these days, Doc, slide into my DMs. That's the, that's the phrase they use when they want Man, a message. How, where are you,
1: like, you know, spending your time these days? That's no, have... what they say on Twitter. Slide oh, okay. into my
0: DMs, and do, I, don't, I don't. Okay. They're way too cool for me. So slide into our DMs if you choose to and uh, and ask us a question or leave us a comment. If you're on Facebook, which talk apparently still is l- literally, but but never goes there. Is that right? Technically, you're still on Facebook.
1: Technically, I'm still on Facebook.
0: <laughs> you can uh, hit us up at The Motley Fool Australia. No surprise, The Motley Fool Australia. Or I'm Scott Phillips Money. So that's our Facebook account. So you can hit us up there. Or on the gram, Instagram. At TMF Scott P and at the Motley Fool AU, we don't yet have a TikTok account. We probably should. I wonder what we do on a Motley Fool TikTok account. You'd have to learn to dance the TikTok dance. <laughs> what? You're assuming I can't dance already? No, no, but that, that TikTok How do you, dance. Why are you assuming sure I can't dance already? I didn't assume. I just TikTok <laughs> you dance. You'd have to learn to dance. TikTok dance is special. You yeah. have
1: to learn to dance by not moving. Really? Like that I seems mean, that's difficult. It's very difficult.
0: Dance by not moving.
1: Yeah, you can't really move a lot. Not like talking have, about not speaking. You just have to be moving like a little bit. Okay. In one spot. <laughs> it's really hard.
0: <laughs> I'm never ever going to do that. But <laughs> I, we've got some young guys on the team, and actually a young lady on the team too now, which is exciting. Um, we might get them to do it. Should we get them to start TikTok? <laughs> <laughs> it's. I'm not going to be the
1: one asking <laughs> them to do it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> put it this way: Just tell, just tell. <laughs> guys, gonna, here's the bad news. You you're going to tell.
1: <laughs> Is the bad I'm news. just going to watch from the <laughs> sidelines.
0: <laughs> so stand by for a Motley Fool Australia TikTok account, or not, as the case might be. Uh, but do please get in touch. And if you want to email us, info at fool.com.au goes to our crack member services team, and they will make sure the message gets passed on. But with that, please do subscribe to the Motley for Money podcast if you're not already. And go to iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app. Even try Podcast One. And if you like what we're doing, please leave us a review. Leave us some stars. Tell your friends. Say some nice things because more foolishness has got to be better for the world, surely. Even if we are on TikTok. Maybe maybe if you join me, we will go on TikTok. Is that... Is that-
1: I don't know The TikTok one Sounds fun
0: Sounds <laughs> fun You, you, well, you can on that no, As
1: long as I'm not doing oh, it Oh okay, okay Fair enough
0: So they Do us a favour Tell your friends So we don't have to go on TikTok Because that's just not good for anybody And of course You can get a dose of Foolish Straight to your inbox By going to Fool.com.au Forward slash Triple M you'll get an offer to join Dividend Investor and you can join our free mailing list, which also gives you some marketing information for full disclosure. Uh, But occasionally I send some emails with some interesting stuff on there. I talked about the big economy this week. So if you haven't had a chance to check that out, make sure you do. In the meantime, that's it for this week's Motley Full Money special, Mailbag. We'll be back on Tuesday with a special episode on money hacks. And this time, here's a hint, it's going to be a super episode. Do you like that? Super episode. Love it. Full on. Full on. (laughs)